Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd Brian Backus, and today I'm joined by Nick. Hey there. And we'll be discussing How to Play Kids on Bikes by Jonathan Gilmore and Doug Lewandowski, published by Hunter's Entertainment with Renegade Game Studios and Infectious Play Publishing. Kids on Bikes is a game about ordinary people facing the extraordinary, the supernatural, and the just plain creepy. Set in the recent past, the game evokes stories from Scooby-Doo to Stranger Things as the players attempt to uncover mysterious goings-on in their small town. Kids on Bike features collaborative character building, a resolution system that puts a twist on the traditional set of polyhedral dice, and the chance to play a communally controlled character with supernatural powers. So let's kick it off with some of the unique aspects of this system. Sure, Todd. Uh, one of the things I love about this system is its collaborative world building process that's really built directly into the game and into the game book itself. We've discussed how some PBTA systems use character creation to form bonds between the players. Um, and one of the things I really love about Kids on Bikes is that each player uh, gets to answer a number of questions, not only about their characters, but about the town itself. Everything from the town's name to its high school sports team mascot to rumors about the town's past or its horrifying present. I think this is a really nice tool to both bring players collectively into the world uh, and to provide hooks that the GM can pull from as the game develops. You know, not all of these rumors that the players come up with at session zero are going to be true, but most of them can also be assumed not to have sprouted out of uh, thin air. Another fun uh, mechanic in the world building is that uh, if you're playing multiple sessions, as we did, players are asked to name what is different now than it was from the last time they played, almost like a TV show that skips over you know, a couple of weeks between episodes. So these differences might involve the closing of the creepy mine at the edge of town or something as dramatic as the school mysteriously burning to the ground. The next thing that Kids on Bikes does that I haven't seen a lot of games do, except for perhaps Still Fleet, which I'm playing with the, the Paranoia team, um, just not on podcasts. This is just what we do for fun. Um, play games outside of the podcast. I play pod? games outside of the podcast. How dare you? Um, so Kids on Bike uses stat dice. Um, you assign a different die. So like your D20, your D12, your D10 um, to each of your six stats based on the trope or like archetype that you've selected for your character. So say you're playing the Brutus Jock, you'd assign your D20 to Brawn, your D12 to Fight, and then you do like a D10 for Grit, a D8 for Flight, and that'd leave your remaining D6 for Charm and a D4 for Brains. On the other hand, a scout might have a d20 for brains, d12 for grit, d10 for charm, and so on. Unlike a traditional d20 system, where you have relatively equal possibility of success on a standard roll, assigning a different die to each stat changes your odds of success for different tasks pretty drastically. And it's worth noting that while the game is sort of intended to be played with characters who fit these archetypes as written in the book, um, and they offer a lot of different archetypes. Uh, the designers do include rules for creating your own character from the ground up. Yes, and I also want to note, because I love all the archetypes they offer, one of the things I love about them, I'm remembering now, is that they offer, we'll talk about age in a second, but they also offer different archetypes for different ages. So like some of them, the, the archetypes for children and teens and adults are not all the same. 
uh, I love that like blue collar worker is an adult archetype, but mm-hmm. you know might might be mechanically identi- identical to one of the children's archetypes, but it's kind of geared a little bit more toward like what does the adult version of this character look like? Yeah. But sticking to the dice, uh, one of the things you might be thinking is, wow, if you know one of my stats, I'm rolling a d24, and the other, I'm rolling a d4, uh, you might worry about having a difficulty 15 check, say, and if you need to roll your d4 stat, thinking to yourself, that's impossible, I might as well not roll. But in Kids on Bikes, that's not actually true, because they incorporate a fun mechanic that has one of my favorite tabletop role-playing game names, uh, which is exploding dice. Uh, and what that means is that if, if you roll a stat check with a die and you roll the maximum number on your die, so like a four on a d4, and you still don't meet the stat check, it quote unquote explodes, which means that you get to re-roll it and add your new roll to the initial roll. And you can do this as many times as your die explodes until it reaches that target number, or you roll anything other than the highest number. Now, a D4 would need to explode like three times in a row before you have a hope of clearing a difficulty check that's as high as, say, 15, but it's totally possible. And in fact, it's likelier with the small dice than with the big ones. Uh, And this does not apply just to your D4. It's for any of your dice. So get 20 on your D20, you get to roll another D20 and add them together. If and only if you haven't already hit the DC check. <laughs> yes, yes. No, that's important because the game does have degrees of success, if I remember yeah. correctly. So mm. you can explode your dice to meet the threshold of success, but you can't explode it to like God level, right. like crazy, absurd success beyond the mm. minimum. Which is important um, because a number of the, the ways the degrees of success work is like if you're over by five or seven or nine that like changes what you're doing and you can be over like as high as 10 plus which is like more likely with a d20 perhaps if you're looking at a difficulty check of like 22 um but is harder with like a d4 if you're looking at a difficulty check of 15 because you can't get higher than probably three more uh, than 15 in that situation. Um, one of the things that I did like narratively about the exploding dice is they're like, if this happens to you with a stat that you are not good at, um, it's not like you have some like incredible feat of mastery of this thing. It's like something else in the environment caused this to happen. So let's say you're trying to run away from some men in suits with dark glasses and your flight skill is like really crappy. If you have an exploding die that takes you like all the way past them, then like, did you run into a shelf and you like knocked over some motor oil on the ground and they slip and fall? Or like, does uh, a door, like a mechanical door, like close right behind you that like seals you off from them? Like, how does the environment or how does someone else help you do this thing? Which I think is narratively very interesting interesting other than like like in in addition to the idea of like a critical success in a regular tabletop game or or a more traditional like d20 system having this like the world helped you do this fate helped you do this it is not because you're so cool um was an (laughs) it was just like an interesting flavor to me yeah well and, and it makes sense kind of it's like if there's something you suck at 
you can still get lucky. You're just not going to right. suddenly be spontaneously incredible for one second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, something else that this uh, system looks at is age, as we said before, um, which I think is so often in role playing games seen as just like flavor um, and never really a mechanical thing. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, how old your elf is doesn't actually like change anything for you. Um, how young your kobold is doesn't change anything. And that's okay. It's just like it's flavor. It's like what color is your hair? And in Kids on Bikes, um, your age affects certain boons. So kids get plus one to flight and charm because they're fast and they're adorable. It kind of, um, adults get plus one to brains and grit. Teens get plus one to, I think, brawn and fight or something. something. Yes. It's, yeah. But I think it's just like an interesting choice to make that like, yes, um, there are differences that these characters will have inherently based on their age, even if their stats are very different or could be very similar. Like uh, you were saying with like the blue collar worker stats being similar to a certain type of kids stats. But these modifiers would change for them. Yeah, I, th I think it's a really neat device, even though it is a little, you know, like you were saying, kids are uh, what what'd you say? Kids are uh, charming and fast or something, mm -hmm. which is. I'm like, well, that's that's broad, um, <laughs> but but I do think it's fun, and I think more importantly, it points to how different this genre feels with different with different age groups. Like, I mm. I, I can't think of a good example that's adults only, but even if you think of like Stranger Things, and you think of the kind of three. All three of those age groups are present in Stranger Things, mm -hmm. and the narratives that they participate in are like very different tonally and certainly plot wise. So I, th I think separating those out is a is a clever choice on the designer's part. I'm in the middle of rewatching Stranger Things season two right now with my partner, um, and reading over these rules while being like fully immersed in that world has been very cool to be like, Oh, this is what they're pulling from. Or like, Oh, they're pulling from like this genre trope. Yeah. I feel like I have stranger things opinions, but I haven't watched it in long enough to remember exactly what they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other interesting mechanics <laughs> that you should be aware of when you're listening to our game because i'm sure it will come up is adversity tokens we have described a number of systems before as quote-unquote failing forward this game takes it a little more uh literally than some other games do in that every time you fail a skill check uh in stranger things you get what's called an kids adversity. on bikes <laughs> Each time you fail a skill check in Kids on Bikes, you get an adversity token. And this token can be redeemed for a plus one to a check per token for a future roll. Um, and you can use, if I remember correctly, uh, again, as many tokens on a roll as you have as until you meet that uh, minimum threshold of success, mm -hmm. um, which means that you can really kind of like stockpile them and spend them as you want. I'm really curious to see how many of these get handed out during our game. Honestly, it'll be interesting to see how this works out in play. At first glance, it can feel a little like a half way measure between 
the like D20 model where it's like you fail and you failed and that's it. Nothing happens. And the PBTA model, which is like you failed and therefore something interesting and bad happens. This is like you failed. Nothing happens immediately. But now you have some like leverage to uh, propel the narrative when you really want to. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I should note, you can also activate certain special abilities or powers that your character might have with adversity tokens. Yeah, I think it's I'm very fascinated to see like how this will play out. I think that it's an interesting system and it's like, you know, sometimes your dice are off. Sometimes you're just rolling like the worst of your life. Um, and I think it can always be a bummer to be that person at the table and having a like, OK, this sucks but I can do something cool later maybe um, is a nice feeling to have. Um, something I think is actually really cool and that I, I don't think we've seen before um, in uh, the games that we've played so far is uh, Kids on Bikes kind of looks at like how you're doing certain actions and allows you to roll for them in different ways depending on the situations that you're in. So they call these planned actions versus snap decisions. So if you are... You know, going back to Stranger Things, um, if you are like setting up the uh, sensory deprivation tank in the middle of the gym at night, there's no hostile forces immediately moving against you. Um, this could count as a planned decision. You have a lot of time. You have a lot of space. You can think about it. And so with planned um, actions, you can take half the value on your die as a given instead of rolling. Now, this might not sound like super crazy, but if your DC check is 10 and you have a D20 in that stat and you have like space and time in the narrative of the game, you can say like, I just want to take the 10 and that's enough for me for this. Um, you can also... Um, use adversity tokens like you normally would but during a planned action your friends your allies can all spend their own adversity tokens to help you which is really cool and then on the other hand there's snap decisions and this is kind of your more standard um, ability check or role if you're running down a hallway being chased by a monster or some guy in suits or whatever you you're just making snap decisions so you have to roll you can't take that half of your die as a success um, and you can only use your own um, adversity tokens um, so nobody can help you in that situation. Uh, and I like this as a as a way to like change how are we doing things um, that I think is more nuanced than a typical D20 system. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I actually think this is based in a D20 system, but something that maybe fell out of favor uh, because back in 3.5 D&D and Pathfinder first edition and so on, there was a mechanic very much like this that actually was called you said the phrase earlier taking 10 oh. where if you had like space and time and usually i think there were like other rules around it if mm. i'm remembering my pathfinder 1e days correctly uh like like you know certain actions you couldn't do it with but mm. for most skill checks it was like yeah if you have like space and time you can take 10 plus whatever your bonus is oh cool and call it good. Um, I don't know if there was a precursor like that 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 D and D was drawing on, but that feels like probably where uh, these designers got that idea. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, I love it. I think it is a much more like nuanced system than fifth edition doesn't really let you do that, right? It's no, just kind of like you always roll. Yeah. Yeah. It feels a little silly. <laughs> <laughs> and as our listeners will probably remember, I've only played fifth edition in D&D um, and like Paranoia and Still Fleet now. So this is like, ooh, shiny. Yeah. No, it's a great mechanic. Another great mechanic that I really, really hope we see him play. I will be very excited if we do. <laughs> but one thing, an option that Kids on Bikes offers you is the option to have a co-controlled character at your table. And I just think this is really cool. We, we actually, I guess we did see it in Bluebeard's Bride just now. Um, but uh, I like the the option to have a character that everybody, all of the players at the table control while still having that kind of autonomy of having their own PC in mm-hmm. the game. Um, and what the character is that you control it together in Kids on Bikes is you can have up to one quote unquote powered character, which if you think of the genre tropes we're pulling on, you know, this is 11 from Stranger Things or E.T. or, you know, any other like slightly psychic, supernatural 80s movie character. Uh, This character is jointly controlled by all of the players. And when this character is first introduced, the GM gives each player a few note cards that determine aspects of the powered character and that that player can control, which is really neat, I think. So basically all of the powered characters like abilities but also i think personality traits and like quirks and so on get kind of divvied out to the players and the gm will put a pool of psychic energy tokens in the center of the table that anyone can use if they've been given one of those psychic traits to control that they want the powered character to use the traits might be as mundane as like fear of the dark or the ability to control time and I think I just think that's really cool. And I really hope we get to see it. Yeah. A player who wants to activate a power describes how the power would be used. And the GM sets a difficulty check if the player wants to proceed. So like, say there's a difference between 11, you know, like catching a falling child with her psychic abilities um or like slamming a door versus like flipping a van that's barreling toward her and her friends on bikes like these would be different difficulty checks so the player describes how they would like to use the powers the gm sets a difficulty check and then the player can choose to proceed or not at this point like if you know uh grabbing the moon with your psychic energy and hurtling it into the earth is going to cause so much psychic strain that it will kill this character you like probably wouldn't do it and that would be a high dc i would assume um if the player wants to proceed they spend one pe token and then they roll two d4 and subtract this number from the gm's dc so like the highest number you can get on that is an eight um if the difficulty check is larger than eight um then you will expect to need to like use psychic energy tokens to make up the difference and once you have your roll you subtract that from the dc if the dc is zero or negative one at that point you did it you're great you're fine if it didn't you can either like you choose that the ability fails 
or you keep spending PE tokens until you get that difficulty check number down to zero. The problem is if you spend too much of your PE tokens, you could cause the powered character to either like pass out or in very dire situations die. So I think it's like an interesting mechanic for how do we like gate control of this person with like theoretically unlimited power. Um, and also like I'm making this decision with L's like uh, telekinetic powers, but Nick, you might have something coming up where like it would be really useful to have her telepathy. Um, and so like, how do we make sure that we're doing both of those things um, and not just like draining all of the pool for one thing uh, and then not having our powered character to help us out later. I'm imagining an incredibly like shitty player who keeps deliberately killing psychic characters <laughs> to refresh powers. Don't do that, kids. Don't do that. Sorry. Just popped into my head. I also can't hear PE tokens without thinking of them as phys ed tokens. Mm, mm -hmm, and that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's a significant design flaw in this game. <laughs> uh, um, but to shift gears... Uh, a, a minute in, to talk about how the game is sort of intended to be played. Um, something that really stands out when reading the rule book for Kids on Bikes, in addition to the collaborative creation of the town and the shared control of the power character of, of the powered character, is the way that the game designers really push for narrative offers and a sharing of narrative weight between the players and the GM. You know, they give one example like approaching a dark but warm portal and how in a lot of traditional D D20 games, the GM might say, if a player says, I stick my hand into the portal, which I don't think my players would ever say. <laughs> um, but if a player sticks their hand into the portal, the GM might say, okay, you put your hand into the portal and a skeleton hand like grabs onto it in the darkness. What do you do? The writers of Kids on Bikes suggest instead offering as you reach in your hand into the dark portal that opens on the wall, what do you feel that surprises you and why don't you pull your hand out of the portal when you feel it? This sets up basically the same given circumstances, the same situation for the players to solve. The hand is in the portal. It's not coming out, but offers the players a chance to build the world with the GM and kind of develop the narrative in the ways that interest them. Mm -hmm. This is something this was just one of those like, oh, like nobody's told me that that's a, th a way that we like can approach these things before. And it was very like revelatory for me to be like, oh, I could do that with anything like they they describe this in a different way but they're like there's a pounding at the door the door opens who's on the other side of it um like is it the school principal is it um someone that be, would be really good for you in this moment or is it something really bad like where does the player's mind take it is it the monster that's following you is it you know the phys ed teacher saying like what are you kids doing here this time of night um and like having those narrative offers open and not having to plan all of those things necessarily, but say like, what's interesting to you? Where could we go from there? Um, I think is a really cool way to keep your character, your players engaged in the fiction um, and not just be presenting like, here is a situation for you. Solve it. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a really cool thing that I like doing in games whenever possible. 
I was reflecting recently because I was <laughs> I was introducing a the cast of a production of She Kills Monsters to Dungeons and Dragons and mm-hmm. like how that game is played. Um, and I was reflecting that I think one of the reasons people don't have this habit built up in D20 games or really any like crunchier war game me game is because for threats it's much harder particularly with players who like have know the conventions of the game mm-hmm. to improvise like that you know you the D, the gm in a dnd game is usually saying a skeletal hand grabs you because they have skeletons prepped (laughs) like they have those stat blocks ready to go but certainly something that a i'll say i i still love it and it's one reason i'm playing less and less like D D d20 games um, <laughs> lately and b it's uh still something that you can certainly do like you were talking about with uh you know who's at the door who walks into the tavern and so on and so forth yeah and that talk about stat blocks kind of leads us to what i know was one of the last things you mm-hmm. wanted to chat about yeah i think that uh the way this game approaches violence is very interesting to me like it's very not a war gamey thing Um, There are no stat blocks for um, supernatural threats that you might be encountering. There's no stat blocks for CIA agents um, or their helicopters. Like, there's nothing like that. Um, The way violence is described and portrayed in the game, um, violence against other characters can go south really fast, even if that's just, like, the bully. Um, Like, basically, you roll, I think it's fight, Uh, And if you're taking blows, you roll brawn and you kind of like take the difference of those. And if the difference is like five or more, um, it could be like a pretty bad thrashing. If it's like seven to ten or more, it's like if this person doesn't get immediate medical help, they will die. And so it goes from like, you know, punching someone in the arm and saying like you're mad at them can go to like full out deadly violence very quickly um, in a way that I'm just not used to in tabletop games because they expect you, like many of the games that I've played, they expect you to take damage. They expect you to have a pool of health. This game doesn't. It wants you to solve your problems in other situations. It also recognizes the fact that like most of us don't just go in swinging to solve our problems. Like that's not really a thing. Um, And while you can like it's kind of expected that you will, a la Stranger Things, you know, use violence against paranormal things that you're encountering to try to, like, push them back. There isn't a a set, like, way to defeat the Demogorgon or whatever. Like, the, that's not part of what this game is. Um, maybe your powered character will do that through psychic means. Um, but it's not really built into, like, you, everyday Joe, going about your life. It's not a game about fighting monsters. It's a game about solving mysteries and coming up against unknowable forces. Um, and I think that that's neat. Yeah. I think that's part of its... Um part of the game's like horror roots emerging is like yeah you are human beings are very fragile Mm -hmm. (laughs) or um to quote another game i love but i haven't gotten to play uh which is chris beset of loot the rooms a dragon game Mm -hmm. which is mostly a a spoof on it's mostly a like 
pointed satire of D&D mm-hmm. in stripped down form. But uh, the section titled violence in that game starts out with the sentence, you're made of meat. And when people poke holes in you, you bleed and die. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I just love that, uh, you know, pointed reminder that violence is not a way that most people in the world solve problems because it's like very in the real world it's a bad (laughs) but also b very likely to end up with you being dead as well so yeah todd what are i'm as we wrap up here i want to know what are some of the things that you're most looking forward to hearing in our game of kids on bikes yeah i mean as we said before, I think the adversity tokens um, have opportunity to be a very interesting mechanic. Um, I would love to see how that plays out. And I'm also interested in like how the rumors will be used. I'm interested in seeing how Charles um, brings those to life in unexpected ways. Um, the way the book talks about it is like, if something weird is happening at like the Elks Lodge, um, you should totally let something weird happen, but maybe it's not what the players think. Um, mm. Such that they like, there is a rumor about it. Weird things are happening. They jump to the conclusions that the rumors are true, and you twist the rumors in some way. Um, where like, they might still be doing terrible things at the Elks Lodge. They just might not be vampires. Um, and I think that that's fun and interesting, um, both in terms of like this shared world building, but also setting and playing with player expectation. Yeah. What do you I, think? Yeah, I'm also really interested in the rumors. And I'm interested, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the powered character. I really hope that we get to see one and mm-hmm. see how that how that goes, because I just think it will be really interesting to hear people navigate like having their own character and also having this character that is shared with the group that they kind of have to negotiate that balance. Yeah. So I'm super excited for that. Awesome. Well, next week, folks, you'll be able to listen to um, session zero of Kids on Bikes and get to meet the whole crew. And we'll catch you then. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertaldine. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds.